Funding for Yale Cancer Answers is provided by Smilo Cancer Hospital. Welcome to Yale Cancer Answers with your host, Dr. Anise Chagpar. Yale Cancer Answers features the latest information on cancer care by welcoming oncologists and specialists who are on the forefront of the battle to fight cancer. This week, it's a conversation about innovations in the care of breast cancer with Dr. Eric Weiner. Dr. Weiner is a professor of medicine and medical oncology at the Yale School of Medicine, where Dr. Chagpar is a professor of surgical oncology. So, Eric, you and I have known each other for a while, but I was hoping that you could tell everybody a little bit more about yourself and how it is that you became a breast medical oncologist. Oh, gosh. It, uh, it was a long time ago that I decided to be a, a breast cancer doctor. Um, as a uh, medical student, I was actually interested in cancer and did my thesis in medical school on a breast cancer subject, but I didn't necessarily think I would become a breast cancer doctor. And then for a while, I, I actually thought about being a psychiatrist, but decided that that wasn't probably quite what I wanted to do. And as a resident, I just found cancer to be the most interesting area that, that I dealt with. And so I, I was actually here at Yale as a resident, and then I went to Duke as, as a fellow. And um, in truth, I was interested in breast cancer, but it was also an opportunity because a job opened up as uh, someone to, to really take care of most of the patients with breast cancer at, at Duke in those days. And it was a time when we knew much less about breast cancer um, and when a very young doctor could suddenly become the breast cancer expert, which is certainly not the way it would be today. And that was now 30 years ago. And I have to say, and uh, it, it, it's been an incredible journey. Um, and it's been a really perfect profession for me. So tell us a little bit more about why you say that. I mean, because many people, when they think about the perfect profession, uh, they would think about something that is uh, highly lucrative, um, that uh, does not require uh, a tremendous amount of effort, um, and where uh, everybody around you is happy and doing well. When we think about cancer doctors in general, these are people who work incredibly hard. Uh, they have very long hours. They may not be remunerated as well as one would think. And the people around them and the patients that they have, although sometimes do well, sometimes don't. So how do you square that? So I'll just uh, sort of pick that apart a little bit um, and, and answer it in a, in a number of ways. So first, um, I have to say I've always been paid more than enough to meet the needs that I have and my family has. So that's been fine. Um, in terms of um, wanting a job where I might not have to work so hard, that was never really part of my vision. And I'm somebody who likes to work hard, who likes to get involved. Um, and so working hard um, in an area where you really love what you're doing is pretty easy for me. And I think the reason it's been such a perfect profession is that it has been the perfect mix for me of 
both patient care and research and education and, um, and some administration or leadership. Um, and the proportion of those various components has varied over time. But I have to say that um, I've always loved taking care of patients. Um, I've learned um, more than, than one can imagine from taking care of people. Um, and at the same time, I've loved doing the research I've done because if all I did was take care of patients, I think it would be fine, but I wouldn't feel like I were making the kind of improvements that I would like um, in, in, in the field. So, you know, I think one of the things that you point out is something that a lot of people in cancer medicine feel, which is there is a, a certain a certain pride, a certain humility, and a, and a certain joy in being able to not only help patients on a one-to-one basis, but also to help kind of patients writ large uh, in the future doing kind of research that can move the field forward. So can you tell us a little bit more about the research that you've been involved with over the last 30 years? Sure. I do want to make one comment first, though, which is that Um, The place where I feel as a person most centered is when I'm in a room with a patient and the door is closed, as of course it always is for privacy, and I can just focus on that individual. And for me, time stops and I'm really doing nothing but paying attention to what's going on in there. And that's a feeling that I don't often have in other aspects of my life where Many people will say, you know, are you paying attention? And um, I may not always be, but I always am when I'm in the room with the patient. But in terms of research, um, my research has really been um, clinical research and translational research, translational meaning um, clinical research that begins to touch on what's going on in the laboratory. But um, my focus has been on trying to improve treatments for, for women and occasionally men with breast cancer. And that's really gone in two directions. It's gone in the direction of identifying treatments that are truly more effective um, and that allow people to live longer and better lives. And it's also involved um, work looking at when can we do less treatment and spare people side effects that they don't need And that too has been work that's been very satisfying because of course, the best best treatment for anyone is the treatment that that they need, not too much, not too little, but just the right amount. And and so let's, let's dive a little bit more into both of those. So one of the things that we've kind of noticed over time is that we have gotten more effective treatments. And not only have they been more effective, they've been more personalized. So we've seen this burgeoning of personalized medicine, of genomics, of uh, targeted therapies. Talk a little bit more about the genesis of that and where you think that's going in terms of breast cancer. Yeah. So for years, we knew that not all breast cancer was the same, but a patient would ask, what kind of breast cancer do I have? And what I would be able to tell her, and this is now 
25 years ago, I'd be able to say you have stage one breast cancer, you have stage two breast cancer, which really doesn't say what kind of breast cancer it is. It just says how much breast cancer there is because stage is essentially a measure of amount of cancer. But what we've learned, and we've learned this both through clinical trials and through laboratory research that's been done, is that there are really multiple different subtypes of breast cancer. It's not one disease, it's a family of diseases. And exactly how many family members there are are is still a little bit unclear, but there are at least four very distinct types of breast cancer. And these are all treated in a different way and in a way that is much more personalized than was the case 10 or 20 years ago. Um, And that's allowed us to give therapy that is effective and needed, but not a waste of time because it's simply causing side effects without producing benefit. And so the other uh, aspect that you had mentioned is kind of this whole concept of de-escalation. Can we can we get the same results or perhaps even better results by doing less therapy? So less of the therapies that may not be as effective or as needed. Can we uh, cut down on how much surgery we're doing? Can we cut down on how much radiation we're doing? Can we cut down on how much chemotherapy we're giving? Talk a little bit more about that. I think there may be some people who may celebrate at that because who wants more therapy? But others may be a little bit apprehensive, um, thinking that corners may be cut. Are we really getting the same results by doing less? Sure. Um, you know, it's it's interesting. There are both patients and doctors who are worried about backing off. And in some cases, um, I think they don't appreciate that some of our therapies um, have really profound consequences and have side effects that um, one can easily do without and may last for years and years. So doing less may be doing more in some cases if the therapy itself isn't needed. Um, Medical oncologists, people like me, tend to take credit for this whole concept of de-escalation or backing off. But in truth, it's the surgeons who really started it. And if people remember back 50 or 60 years ago, radical mastectomies, a terribly deforming operation, were performed routinely. And it was through a series of of experiments, of clinical trials, that people found that you actually could do much less in the way of surgery. Radical mastectomies became modified radical mastectomies, and then um, it was demonstrated unequivocally absolutely unequivocally, that for women um, who are appropriate candidates for an excision alone or a lumpectomy, that that plus radiation is entirely the equivalent to a mastectomy. And then more recently, over the past decade, we've learned that in many cases, we can do far less in the way of lymph node surgery. Um, The radiation oncologists have also Um, looked carefully at who needs more and who needs less and have been more personalized. 
And again, in medical oncology, now that we have identified subtypes of breast cancer and can can reliably do that, um, we have found that there are many areas where we can, or many patients for whom we don't need to use treatments like chemotherapy, where we can use hormonal therapy alone. And in the setting of one subtype of breast cancer, um, what's called HER2-positive breast cancer, we've, we've found that oftentimes very limited courses of chemotherapy can be every bit as effective as something that's um, more extreme. And so a lot of that, though, is really predicated on generating the evidence that underpins that rationale, that yes, you can do less and achieve just the same outcomes. Um, And that really goes to clinical trial participation. But some patients might be a little bit reticent um, to participate in clinical trials. So how do you talk to patients about clinical trial participation and how important it is to move the field forward? Well, ultimately, a trial has to be right for a patient. And um, in truth, um, there's nothing that should ever compel or force a patient to participate in the trial. It has to be voluntary. But in general, with clinical trials, we're actually trying to do better. So in some cases, we're doing randomized clinical trials that compare a standard with something that we hope is better than the standard. Um, And much of the time, most of the time, um, we're, we're testing new treatments that actually do turn out to be better or certainly not worse. Um, and in clinical trials that may not be randomized, still there, the, the intent, of course, is to, is to develop a treatment or an approach that is better than the standard approach. Um, having said all that, there are patients who just want the standard therapy. They're comfortable with, with what is known, and they don't want to stray beyond that. And that's, that's okay. Um, I will say, however, that all of the improvements that I talked about a few minutes ago all came about as a result of clinical trials. Um, if you're backing off on therapy um, and trying to do less, that should be done as part of a clinical trial to demonstrate that that's safe. If you're looking at a new therapy, and I don't want people to think for a minute that all that we do is back off on therapies, we, we still need to develop new and better therapies, um, hopefully therapies that don't have a, a great deal of toxicity. But um, when we're doing that, that's part of a clinical trial as well. So clinical trials are really um, absolutely critical for moving the field forward. And the reason we have made so much progress in breast cancer is that um, mostly women, because unfortunately, even the men who have breast cancer are often excluded from the clinical trials, but um, women have, uh, have very generously participated in trials. So such good information. We're going to pick up this conversation right after we take a short break for a medical minute. Please stay tuned to learn more about innovations in breast cancer care with my guest, Dr. Eric Weiner. Funding for Yale Cancer Answers comes from Smilo Cancer Hospital, where you can view videos from their survivorship team by searching for the Smilo Survivorship Playlist on YouTube. 
The American Cancer Society estimates that nearly 150,000 people in the U.S. will be diagnosed with colorectal cancer this year alone. When detected early, colorectal cancer is easily treated and highly curable, and men and women over the age of 45 should have regular colonoscopies to screen for the disease. Patients with colorectal cancer have more hope than ever before thanks to increased access to advanced therapies and specialized care. Clinical trials are currently underway at federally designated comprehensive cancer centers, such as Yale Cancer Center and at Smilo Cancer Hospital, to test innovative new treatments for colorectal cancer. Tumor gene analysis has helped improve management of colorectal cancer by identifying the patients most likely to benefit from chemotherapy and newer targeted agents, resulting in more patient-specific treatment. More information is available at YaleCancerCenter.org. You're listening to Connecticut Public Radio. Welcome back to Yale Cancer Answers. This is Dr. Anise Chagpar, and I'm joined tonight by my guest, Dr. Eric Weiner. We're talking about advances in the care of patients with breast cancer. And right before the break, Eric, you were telling us a little bit about clinical trials and about how uh, various advances had been made as a result of clinical trials, but that really this is a very personal decision for patients. Some patients want to participate in clinical trials that potentially could um, positively impact them because, as you say, we're always trying to do better and potentially positively impact future generations of breast cancer patients. On the other hand, other patients may feel more comfortable uh, with standard of care, the tried and true. And I think that that applies to many of the decisions that are made um, with patients. So can you tell us a little bit more about how patients make decisions about care and, and a little bit about what that relationship is, what that interplay is between the, the doctor and the patient in terms of coming up with a plan that is individualized and right for a given patient? Decision-making really varies from patient to patient. And I think that one of the, one of the real keys for doctors is being able to adjust to the patient and to understand how involved she wants to be in terms of the decision. There are patients who truly don't want a great deal of information. And as much as one as a doctor may, may try to provide it, really want the doctor to make the decision for them and just in, and let them know, you know what the treatment is going to be. I don't think that's the majority of people anymore, though. And I think that most individuals with breast cancer really want to be actively involved in the decision. They want to know what the choices are. That's certainly true when it comes to decisions about surgery and whether someone has a lumpectomy or whether they have a mastectomy. But it's also true in terms of the decisions about about medical therapy, about hormonal therapy and chemotherapy. And so I think that as clinicians, um, we really need to be able to talk to our patients, understand where they're coming from, and understand um, how we're going to get to a decision together. And so, you know, when you think about that, though, I mean, it certainly brings up a myriad of ethical, potentially, issues. So, you know, um, patients who may be of certain cultural backgrounds where 
For example, male members of the family may come up to you before you go into the room with the patient saying, um, please don't discuss anything uh, to do with my wife's diagnosis with my wife. Um, I will manage all of the decisions. So how do you, how do you manage that? Oh, you know, that's a really hard question and it's a really hard situation. And it's one that I have quite honestly struggled with for years and years. Um, in general, my feeling is that as much as one has to respect someone's culture and how they want to approach a problem, there are also ways in which we take care of people in the United States. And for me, it's not okay not telling someone what their diagnosis is. And it's not okay not involving them in any way in the treatment decisions. I certainly can modify my approach and I want to listen to the family and respect the family. But I also feel like we have to be respectful of, of the way we feel that people need to be taken care of um, in, in, in a humane way um, here in this country. You know, it brings up another um, whole Pandora's box of issues in terms of the fact that even in this country, different people are treated differently, um, whether we uh, consciously know it or not. Um, but there are disparities in terms of care, racial disparities, ethnic disparities, disparities based on income and insurance, and a whole myriad of other issues. Can you talk a little bit about how those disparities play into the management of patients with breast cancer and perhaps some of the things that are being done or being contemplated uh, to reduce those disparities? So this is an absolutely huge issue for the community. It's a huge issue for us at Yale. Um, and in fact, I will share that just yesterday we had a strategic planning retreat and at least 50% of it was focused on community outreach and issues related to disparities. Um, if we look at the medical literature, it is very clear that anything um, that makes someone a little bit different puts them at risk for getting less than adequate cancer care. That's true in terms of race. It's true in terms of sexual orientation, um, education, income, disabilities, um, and on and on. And um, if we did nothing but eliminate all the cancer care disparities for women with breast cancer, we would probably save at least half of the lives that are lost each year. And I, there's no study that actually has come up with that figure. That's my own guess, but I, I think that it's probably quite accurate. Um, so this is really a critical issue for us. It's going to be an even more critical issue over the course of the next decade as we develop better and better therapies, not just for breast cancer, but for all cancers. The challenge for us as cancer doctors and as cancer researchers is going to be to make sure that we get the care to everyone. And that's not going to be simple, um, but it's something that, that we're really going to have to work on um, with, with really full intensity. 
You know, addre- addressing disparities is something that I think many institutions are are looking at and trying to tackle because it is such a complex issue. But I think one of the things that kind of underpins it um, is this concept of um, financial toxicity. We know that cancer care is incredibly expensive and that really the care that individual patients can afford varies based on their income, based on their insurance status. And yet, as we develop these newer therapies um, that come down the pike, as we were talking about before the break, they tend to be pretty expensive. So what can we do to reduce financial toxicity that can really help um, many patients and kind of level some of the playing field at least? Well, you can think of financial toxicity in in a couple of ways. Um, One is, of course, just the um, sometimes um, substantial out-of-pocket costs for co-pays, but also for things like parking and days locks from work and childcare and, and, and everything else. And we can certainly do our best to try to help patients with that by connecting them to services in the community and, and, and using at times philanthropic funds to cover some of those expenses. I think the bigger issue though um, is that the cost of cancer care in the United States has become truly overwhelming. It's bankrupting for virtually any individual who doesn't have adequate insurance. New drugs cost in the range of a hundred to two hundred thousand dollars a year. I mean, these are numbers we we can't even fathom. Um, and so, I think this is really a policy issue. And at some point, we're going to have to change our approach to the way um, we um, look at drug development um, and the the uh, the way we look at the pharmaceutical industry as a whole. Um, As people may be aware, many drugs are much less expensive in other countries. Um, And um, we really don't do a very good job of regulating drug prices. So this is all going to have to change in the years ahead. We're going to need a new approach. What I don't want to see is um, a decision that we're suddenly going to stop developing new drugs because they're too expensive, because of course, we still do need new drugs, not just in breast cancer, but for many, many different types of cancer. Yeah, but you bring up a good point, which is, you know, these drugs are uh, very critical in terms of spurring on innovation to help us to conquer cancer, as it were. Um, But the cost really can be prohibitive here in the United States, which brings up another issue, which is there are many places in the world, low to middle income countries, where people still get cancer. And yet the cost of these newer therapies, if it's prohibitive here in the United States, one can only imagine how completely out of reach it is for patients in other parts of the world. So what responsibility do you think we have here in the first world um, to help our fellow human beings in other parts of the globe? And 
what do you think should be done in terms of that? Yeah, so I think we have a uh, very significant responsibility. I do want to say that I think our very first responsibility is making sure that everyone in the United States gets the care that they deserve. But I think we also have to focus on people around the world. There are efforts um, that are going on with professional societies in different countries trying to make sure that that drugs are available to people. Um, And this is something that is really very much a work in progress. But the better our care gets, the more tragic it is that care isn't delivered to everyone. Dr. Eric Weiner is a professor of medicine and medical oncology at the Yale School of Medicine. If you have questions, the address is canceranswers at yale.edu, and past editions of the program are available in audio and written form at yalecancercenter.org. We hope you'll join us next week to learn more about the fight against cancer here on Connecticut Public Radio. Funding for Yale Cancer Answers is provided by Smilo Cancer Hospital.